I've changed my theology. Lorraine will be now giving the message. Oh, my gosh. No, I haven't. I can still be your pastor. Um, between services, I, I had... Um, I had the privilege of speaking at a, a service in between these services. And so um, it was a friend that used to go to the church I used to pastor in downtown Long Beach. And uh, they were meeting. It's a Native American gathering of believers. And they were meeting at Bethany Church. And I got there at Bethany Church, and there was, like, nobody there. And so um, I happened to find one custodian that was there. He tracked down, called someone, found out it was actually in downtown Long Beach in the middle of youth gang territory. And so um, I went there, and at first I was going, oh, man, should I just, like, pretend like I never found that custodian? But then I thought, you know what, uh, Paul's going out through the empire, and um, I, I need to be faithful to the Word of God. So I drove down there, and uh, the reason why I wanted you to stay is because they made you a gift. This is from Frank from uh, the Unbroken Circle Fellowship, and he actually made this for you, a Native American uh uh, necklace. So I want to give that to you. I think there's a picture up here. Um, that was them. And I'm looking old there, but they're looking good. And they meet in a garage. That was actually at, uh, Jonna's uh, garage off 9th and Magnolia. Remember, we, we actually did some outreaches there many years ago. So anyway, I just want to give that to you. And yeah, so that was, that was kind of cool. All right. Well, with that introduction, uh, you know, it, it was just a reminder that, um, you know, when God has you uh, he, and you're following him, he leads you to unexpected places. And, uh, but what compels you is that you're compelled by the gospel. And as I thought about that, I was like, am I going to be a faithful minister of the gospel, wherever that might be? And so um, when I get asked to preach the gospel, I'm going to respond to that. And so uh, that, was, that was a blessing to meet these uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Today, we're going to begin a new series, and that is called, uh, that is going to be through uh, Paul's letter to the Roman church in the book of Romans in the New Testament. We will be in this series for, I don't know, eight or so months, and this series is going to be called A First Century Faith for the 21st Century, and we're going to go throughout the entire epistle of Romans for that. Uh, before we get into our passage today, which is going to be Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 17, you can go ahead and turn there right now if you want, Romans 1, verse 1 through 17, um, I want to make a few comments, uh, let's go back to that uh, slide, uh, upwards, perfect, I want to make a few comments on why we're doing this series before we actually get into our passage today, and I want to say four things of why I think this is the right time for us to be in the book of Romans and what kind of where we're going, what we hope to learn, etc., and how the book of Romans has been impactful. So let me say these four things, and then we'll read our passage, we'll get into it. Uh, number one, why do we, why does City Bible Church need to be looking at the book of Romans right now? Why specifically us? And why is now the right time to launch into a series on the book of Romans? If you go back two and a half years into the past, this is around the beginning of the COVID pandemic that stopped the world. When that happened, uh, that for our church, like every other church in the world, it really it disrupted everything that was happening. And as soon as that happened uh, and we stopped meeting here, 
I asked myself, well, what does the church need to hear? We're sojourners, we're exiles, we can't meet together. And so we launched into a series called The Church as Diaspora. We were in that series for about a year, where it was primarily based on 1 Peter, 2 Peter, the book of James, uh, these books that talk about God's people as sojourners, exiles, and foreigners. So we were in that series for about a year to navigate the pandemic, looking at the spiritual themes that early church faced. After that series, we went into a nine-week series that was called Transformations. And we looked at nine different areas of how the world had changed um, and, and coming you know, in the middle of the pandemic. After that, we went into a series called Life and a series called Joy that was based on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Philippians because we want to remind ourselves of the life that we have in Christ and the joy that we have in Christ in those epistles. And now we feel the time has come to look at the Epistle of Romans. And the reason why is because the world over the past two and a half years has reset. Um, a lot of things have changed. It goes without saying. But what has also happened is a lot of the changes that were underway in the world in terms of technology, economics, um, the way uh, we view politics, um, a number of ways, have been accelerated. And some people believe that the changes that were underway before COVID, because of COVID, got accelerated about 20 years. I think the same is true in the faith, in the Christian faith, is that in some way or another, because of COVID, the, the state of the church, which was in decline, got accelerated about 20 years. The world is reset, and this is a perfect time for us to look at the book of Romans, because the Romans, the epistle of Romans is very much a foundational book to our faith. It, it's, it's a perfect book to say, let's reset our faith, let's relay a theological foundation to our faith, and the book of Romans is perfect for that. Number one, that's why we need the book of Romans at this particular time in the history of City Bible Church. Number two... We're looking at the book of Romans because God has used the book of Romans mightily to change the lives of his church. Uh, just some brief examples that you will be familiar with. Um, Augustine, the great Western theologian, theologian in the 4th and 5th century AD, uh, was uh, impacted greatly by the book of Romans. Augustine, this great theologian, of which uh, we're not, you know, the Protestant Reformation was based on many of the things that Augustine had laid down a thousand years earlier in terms of his theology. He's that significant. So Augustine, when he was about 30 years old, um, he had studied the scriptures, but he was very much a worldly, carnal Christian, if he was even Christian at all at that point. And when he was about 30 years old, uh, he tells the story of he was sitting under a fig tree, and he was just so broken over his own flesh, sinfulness, his own, his own ability, inability to overcome temptation in his life. And he prayed, and he just felt God leading him to read a passage in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13, where it says to renounce worldly ways, to live your life for God. And when he, he says when he read that, uh, that was like a conversion moment for him, and that God used the book of Romans for that. He decided to then get baptized after that, 
and devoted his, the rest of his life to Christian service. And so Romans played an enormous role in Augustine, who has impacted many theologians today. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer in the 16th century AD. Uh, Martin Luther was a German monk, uh, and he largely said that he became a monk because he wanted to do more things for God, completely dedicate his life through his own um, penitence to make up for his sinfulness so that God would receive him into heaven. Well, Martin Luther one day said that he read a verse that we're going to read today in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul says, the righteous shall live by, not by human works, but by faith. And when Martin Luther read that, he realized that all that he'd been trying to do for God was in vain and that it actually gave him a great sense of relief to know that Christ had accomplished the work on his behalf. And uh, that was, and you know, Martin Luther was instrumental in the Protestant Reformation, as you know. John Wesley, uh, founder of the Methodist movement, here's a man who was Oxford trained. This is a man who um, at one point was on a boat, I believe in the Atlantic Ocean, and the, the, the ship was about to sink because it, was such, it got caught in a massive storm. Wesley, this Oxford-trained theologian, started to panic, had all this theology, was, but uh, was fearing his own death. And he hears in another room on the same ship a group of very uneducated Christians praising God during this storm. And Wesley is crushed because he realized all of his theological knowledge did not bring him to the place where these uneducated Christians who are praising God saying, oh, we'll soon see you in heaven, Lord. And so he goes back to, to, um, to England. And he wanders down this street, which I went to uh, a few months ago. I actually went to the spot of Wesley's conversion on a street called Aldersgate. Walks into a church service. And uh, they didn't have a preacher that day. And so the preacher literally was reading from Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. I mean, I can't imagine a more boring sermon. We don't have a preacher today, so we're just going to read the, the commentary on the book of Romans. And yet when Wesley heard that, he said... In his words, his heart, quote, was strangely warmed. He believed it was at that moment that his conversion uh, to the Holy Spirit happened. And as you know, Wesley and his brother, John Wesley and his brother, Charles Wesley, would ride on horseback from town to town in England. And the Wesleyan revivals that happened during his ministry um, in the 18th century, many historians now look back and believe that it was because of the Wesleyan revivals that they spared England their equivalent of a French revolution. That in France, the poor rose up, you know, a lot of people died because of, um, you know, the, the, the corruption of the monarchy in, in France and how poor people were. Well, the Wesleyan revivals probably saved England, the equivalent of a French Revolution in England, because people had come to know Christ, and they weren't going to revolt in the same way. Augustine, Luther, Wesley, and for myself, I know that when I was coming back to the faith in college, the Book of Romans played a, an enormous role in educating me that all the things I didn't know about the faith. In fact, I think the two most influential books in my own Christian life that, have, that really have uh, grounded me has been the Book of Romans and the Book of Ephesians. And so uh, the Book of Romans has changed lives. Uh, but thirdly, Romans is, greatest, is Paul's greatest epistle. 
the Holy Spirit used Paul to write many epistles. He wrote um, what is essentially half, uh, half of the New Testament. But Paul, Romans is Paul's greatest work that the Holy Spirit used him for. And I think that if you understand the book of Romans, all 16 chapters, you will understand the thrust of the New Testament. If I had to choose one book to tell a person to read to understand the New Testament, I would actually tell them to read the book of Romans. Um, Paul wrote Romans during his third missionary journey. And he probably wrote Romans from the city of Corinth. Corinth is in... um, it's in the southern half of Greece. It's an area called, it was called uh, Acacia. There's Macedonia, northern area of Greece, Acacia in the southern area of Greece, modern day Greece. And Paul probably wrote Romans from Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey. It's recorded that he spent in Acts chapter 20, verse 3. It says that he was in Greece for about three months during that time on his way to Jerusalem where he knew that he would be persecuted uh, by the Roman government. And so that's probably where Paul wrote the book of Romans. Uh, This is a book that Paul wrote to a church that he had never visited before up until that point. So when he's writing Romans from Corinth, he's writing to a church that he had not been to. However, he knew a lot of believers at Rome. We know this from Romans 16. In Romans 16, which we'll get to at the end of our series, uh, Paul just greets person after person. He commends a woman named Phoebe who's being sent to Rome. Uh, it was a co-worker. She was a co-worker of Paul, and she got sent to Rome. But after that, he goes on to uh, greet 24 people, uh, 17 men, seven women, and their households, so it was more than 24 people. And these are people that Paul says, uh, Phoebe's taking this letter to the Roman church, and uh, he has all these groups of believers at Rome that he knows because he has served with them. He knows them. So even though Paul had not visited Rome, he knew many believers there. So it's his greatest work. Now, throughout this entire series, we're going to learn a lot about the Christian faith in the book of Romans. Uh, Let me give several examples. Number one, throughout this series, the book of Romans will teach us the gospel. We will learn about sin, forgiveness, faith in the righteousness of Christ for salvation. We're going to learn the gospel. Number two, we are going to learn a theological anthropology of how man is designed, made in the image of God, and is fallen. Number three, we're going to learn a systematic theology of the Christian faith on massive issues that you have to understand to mature in Christ, like justification, sanctification, glorification. We're going to learn a theology of the law, adoption, substitutionary atonement, predestination, election. We're going to learn all of the systematic theology through Romans. Number four, we're going to learn about the person of the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. Number five, we're going to learn about how the church should uh, relate to one another, spouses one to another, believers one to another, how Christians are to live in harmony, holiness, and love in the truth. Number six, in the epistle of Romans, we're going to learn how Christians should interact with the world, how we're to live holy lives amidst the world, how we're to share the gospel in the world. Number seven, we're going to learn in Romans about a theology of, of the nation of Israel, 
how Israel has fallen away from God and in the future they will return back into the kingdom of God through Christ. And number eight, and finally, we're going to learn about eschatology, future things, how God in the future will remake the earth, the broken and lost and sinful earth and uh, make all things right in the end. We're going to learn all of that through the book of Romans and more. And finally, um, as we look at the book of Romans, we have chosen the word faith, a first century faith for the 21st century. Why have we chosen the word faith? It is because the word faith comes from the Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. The word faith, pistis, is used more in the book of Romans than any other book in the entire Bible. It is used 40 times in the book of Romans. That's more than any book in the Old Testament. Any book in the New Testament, the word faith is used. And the central question that Romans is trying to answer is this. What does it look like to have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? How does that change things when you have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? How we're going to go about doing this is that's the overarching theme for our series. Every time we give a sermon... um, We are not going to go in-depth into every single verse in the epistle. What we're going to do is we're going to make some comments on the main themes of the passage that we have chosen. And so we're going to kind of associate with a central thought primarily. And that we're going to do that today. So um, hopefully that's an introduction that makes sense. I'm not going to be doing that every single week. But that is kind of overview why it's important, where we're going, what we're going to learn. And uh, I think God is going to, we're going to come to the end of this series. And you're going to look at your own Christian walk and say, that's why I'm here. That's why I believe. I am rooted. I am strengthened. I am edified in the truth to stand against and separate, not being conformed to the world, but offering myself. This is why I offer myself as a living sacrifice to God. And as I do that, I'm going to discover his holy, his acceptable, and his pleasing will for my life. I think that's going to be the outcome, the fruit of this entire series. And we're going to become a stronger church because we have spent the time to look into this deep, deep theological book. With that said, we're going to get into the passage that we have today. We're going to go ahead and bring that up in Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. Uh, We don't have it written here right now, so you can turn there, read along with us as you stand now for the reading of God's Word. We'll go ahead and read verse 1 through 17 in Romans, which is our passage today. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was the descendant of, from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all All those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. 
that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last Less succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have been often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. And amen, Lord, as we have read your word. Uh, These are the very living, breathing words of God. As we have heard about the importance of this epistle in our lives, Lord, we want to remember that the righteous shall live by faith in Christ. And we are righteous because of that faith, because Christ is righteous. May we desire that righteousness, Lord. May we be reminded as we embark on this great journey into the Epistle of Romans of the great faith, your great grace in our lives. May we be renewed in our minds to be offered up as a living sacrifice. We may not conform to the world, but discover your great and pleasing and holy will. And I pray that for our congregation, that would be true, Lord. And so now as we delve into your word, would you bless us, grow us, edify us, strengthen us, Help us to move uh, in ways that uh, are beyond things that are inconsistent with what we learned today and to embrace anew um, our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now have a seat. Thank you. So today what we're going to do is this. Let's go forward. Uh, We're actually going to focus on verse 16 and 17. The righteous shall live by faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for everyone who believes. The righteousness of God is revealed through that faith. We're going to come to that in a moment. Before we do, I want to go back to the first 15 verses. Um, Actually, go forward. Perfect. And um, I want to summarize the first 15 verses. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. And Paul's main two points in these first 15 verses are this. One, I am called by God as as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's verse 1 through 7. And his second point in verse 8 through 15 is, I want to come to Rome to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Those are his first two main points, essentially, in these first 15 verses. I want to take a moment to unpack this. We'll go fairly rapidly. We won't really give it the justice it's due, because I do want to get to verse 16 and 17, which is going to be the primary thrust of the message today. And so, So um, let's make some commentary on the first 15 verses. I want you to, as I do this, it might be kind of hard for you to see the scripture over here. Maybe you can. If not, I I want you to either look at these verses on the screen or I want you to look at it on your phone or in your Bible in front of you. I want you to follow along as we make commentary on the first 15 verses in one way, shape, or another. All right, so let's let's uh, take a brief look at these first 15 verses. Verse 1. He says, Paul. Paul was a former persecutor of the church. He became a Christian uh, when the Lord um, brought him to faith in Acts chapter 9. 
And Paul is writing this epistle around maybe 57 AD, somewhere around there. And so this is, um, this is a good 25 years or so after Paul came to faith when he's writing this. So he's had plenty of time to mature in his faith. And it says in verse 1, Paul considers himself to be a servant. Again, Paul doesn't say, I'm a volunteer. I'm volunteering for this thing. We do in church, but Paul did not. He said, I'm a servant. In the Greek, the word servant is actually the word doulos, which is more accurately translated slave. Paul says, I am duty bound. I am not a servant. I'm a bond servant. I'm actually a slave to Christ. We don't see church here as you are volunteering. We see you as a servant of the Lord. I am a servant. I'm a bond. I'm a slave to the Lord. So we don't thank you. I mean, we do thank you for coming and joining us for worship. But the general mindset is not, oh my gosh, we're just so grateful that you showed up to eat our free food. All right. No, this is our duty because we're servants. We're slaves to the Lord. And so that's how Paul saw himself. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. He says in verse one, that's who he's serving. He says in verse 1, he's an apostle. Whenever you see that word apostle, it really has a specific meaning and a general meaning. Whenever you see apostle, apostle comes the Greek word apostolonis. It has a specific meaning of referring to the original apostles, the original disciples, and Paul. Okay, and that's not replicable. There's no original disciples anymore. There's no office of the apostles. There's no actual real apostles anymore. That was a unique, specific designation to the first century men. So the apostle, apostolonis, has a specific meaning to a specific group of men, specific time. But it also has a general meaning. Apostle also means, in general, simply those who are sent Apostle means those who are sent into the world on Christ's behalf. In that sense, we're all quote-unquote apostles to be sent into the world, even though specifically we are not, don't have the title or office of apostle. But in a general way, we are sent out apostolically because we are sent into the world. Verse 1. He says, uh, we are set apart for the gospel of God. Now notice... The gospel is what? Good news. But he says not just the gospel, but the gospel of what? Of God. And that's very important because uh, in the Roman Empire during this time, Caesar would often have heralds go forward on his behalf with his own gospel, with his own good news. And so the heralds would go forth into Rome and they would say, we have good news, we have good news. Um, The emperor has taken the throne. We have good news. The emperor has given birth, his wife has given birth to a son, an heir to the throne. And so there would be good news. And so Paul distinguishes that. He said, it's not just the good news of Caesar, it's the good news of what? Of God. Says in verse two and verse three, promise this 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 gospel and promise beforehand by the prophets of the holy scriptures concerning the son. Prophets of the holy scriptures referring to the Old Testament prophets. It's referring to the three hundred and thirty-two or so prophecies related to the coming and life of Christ. Most of which of those three hundred and thirty-two prophecies were fulfilled when Jesus was born. And so this is the promise beforehand by the prophets of the Holy Scriptures related to the Son, uh, who was a descendant of David. 
Uh, remember the Davidic covenant, there was a promise that the Savior of Israel would come through the lineage of David. And so when you look at Joseph and Mary, uh, Jesus' royal line went through one of them, and Jesus' bloodline went through the other. And so it was really unique that Joseph and Mary, uh, Joseph was his earthly father, though not his real father, and Mary was the one who gave birth to Jesus. And so Jesus actually has a double claim to being a descendant of David, one through royalty and one through blood. And really, there was, can't be that many people that, like Joseph and Mary, that could have claimed both of the, that could have claimed either one of those. It says, in that this was according to the flesh, that Jesus came into this world, in the words of John Calvin, as one who is fully God and fully man. The early church creeds affirmed both, that he was both fully God and fully man. You go on to verse 4. It says that he was declared in power to be the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, the spirit of holiness is who? The Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit declares Jesus as the Son of God, both at his baptism, but also, you know, through the Father, and the dove came upon Jesus, that was an anointing of Jesus, but primarily through Jesus being resurrected from the dead through the power and person of the Holy Spirit, directly involved in that. Verse 4, so that uh, Jesus Christ is our Lord. That was an early confession of the church. It is our confession as Christians. We call Jesus Christ not just a Savior, but really primarily what? As Lord. He is our Lord. Romans 10, if anyone confesses with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that he's been raised from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord overall. Uh, Philippians 2 says that you can confess him as Lord now, but if you don't now, you're going to confess him as Lord later because every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that he is Lord. So he's going to be declared Lord one way or the other. Verse 5, it says, he, Paul said, he goes on to talk about we've received grace and apostleship. Our, our purpose is to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of Jesus' name among all the nations, including you, Romans, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That means that's the Great Commission right there, teaching them to be obedient to the faith, to all the nations, calling them to Jesus Christ, that it is his authority, it is his grace that he has commissioned us as those who are sent into the world. And Paul is reminding the Roman church of that. You go um, into verse 7 now. And Paul says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And this is Paul's standard greeting that he writes to the Roman church, the church at Colossae, the church at Philippi, the church at Ephesus, the church at Galatia. He writes some form of greeting. Grace to you. Sometimes he says grace and mercy and peace and, and goodness, some combination of that. Grace to you and peace from one God our Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his standard greeting. Grace and peace to you. And so that's what Paul is saying in the first seven verses. He says, I am called to be God's minister as of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 through verse 15 now his main point is, I want to come to you in Rome to make disciples of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, he says, I'm thanking God through Jesus Christ for you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Okay, now in verse 8, he's actually thanking God because the faith of the Roman church is being declared throughout all the world. 
Now, that has really two meanings when he says your faith has been declared throughout the world. Number one, it means the same faith that you, do, you hold on to, Roman church, is the same faith that's at Colossae, at Thessalonica, at Ephesus. And so it is in that sense that this common faith is being declared through the whole world. But I also believe that believers outside of Rome were hearing how the believers were being faithful in Rome, and they were greatly encouraged by believe, the believers outside of Rome being encouraged by the faith of the believers in Rome. And so Paul's commending that, and he's letting them know, hey, your faith, the content of your faith, and how you're living that out is being proclaimed in the world. This is very important. It's very important that um, we as Christians today can um, celebrate the faith of other believers in other congregations. There's a lot to mourn and bemoan about what's happening in the church today. But we should be able to celebrate what's happening in the life of other believers and in the life of other godly congregations. Okay, I mean, we're all the same, right? Our natural flesh, when other good things happen to other people, um, sometimes we're envious, we're jealous, we compare ourselves. It happened to you, not for me. You're more, I'm less. Uh, we're all like that to a degree. Um, but in our better moments, you know, especially if you love a person, right? When something good happens to them, you're happy for them, right? You're not, oh man, I wish it wasn't you, I wish it was me. Um, you should be happy for them. And just like that, the same thing should be true in the kingdom of God. When good things are happening at another church or another expression of the kingdom of God, we should celebrate, okay? Now, sometimes if it's false, it's different, but we're not talking about that. Um, and, and so Paul was commending this church. Now, uh, we have a bad habit in our modern 21st century day context. And not only do we tend not to celebrate what's happening at other churches, sometimes we don't celebrate what's happening at our own church. You got to be here to know what's happening, to celebrate, right? When was the last time we went up to another believer and said, I celebrate you. I celebrate what God's doing. I want you to know, brother. I want you to know, sister, what's happening. Well, you can't do that if you don't know what's happening in people's lives. They can't tell you that if you're not here because they don't know, right? And sometimes what happens is we, we hold that in and maybe it's, it's not even out of bad motivations. It's just we don't take the initiative to go up to someone and say, I just want you to know to be encouraged. I'm greatly encouraged by your faith or this is good of what I see God is doing. There are so many, I, I, I mean, there's very few people that actually come up to you in life and commend you, encourage you. We should be like encouragement factories, like producing encouragement after encouragement at this church. We see the faith that's happening. I'm declaring it to the world. I'm declaring it to others. I'm so proud of you, you know? And sometimes what happens on social media is some people can hold up one superstar preacher that they don't even know and post this all over social media and say, listen to this sermon, listen to this, or read this book. And you know what? That's great, right? I've done that too. We can learn from other people. And sometimes God holds up certain individuals and there's fruit there. And there's nothing wrong with that. That can be, I'm actually glad that they're willing to declare their faith unashamedly rather than say nothing when they do that. But sometimes if you're only doing that and holding up preachers that you don't know, who don't even know your name, that can be good because you're unashamed of your faith. You want people to learn what you learn. But if you're not holding up the good things that are happening at your own church on social media at the same time, while you're holding up these superstar preachers, there's a problem there. 
Okay, what Paul's saying is your faith, Roman church, is being proclaimed to the world. He is not saying, hey, there's this one preacher at Rome, and that one guy who's speaking at these conferences, writing these books, and has all these talks, is being held up throughout the world. He's saying your faith as a church, common believers, whatever church you're a part of, you need to be proud of. Okay? It's not going to be perfect. And if, you're, if your view is, I'm only proud of a church that has like the biggest budget, biggest size, and biggest buildings, um, I got news for you. In the post-Christian age, that is not the reality. There's a saying, wherever you are, there you should be. And you should be proud of it. Paul was proud of them. Uh, we should be proud because there's plenty to be proud of what's happening at this church. And I hope you can celebrate that. I do. I love what God is doing at this church. Verse, um, following on, verse 9 um, and 10. He says, you're always in my prayers. He says, I'm praying for you unceasingly. Verse 9 and 10. Are we praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ? You know what's a hard thing to do? Before you critique, before you hate, pray for the person. Man, I have struggled with that. Because there have been people that I have come across from time to time that I just don't really like. I've actually hated other brothers and sisters of Christ. And the challenge for me is before I hate, and maybe they did something that was hate-worthy, righteous anger, so I get that. But am I going to pray for them, their salvation? Am I going to pray for their repentance in the midst of my hate? There's a saying, it's harder to hate someone that you're praying for. And so if you hate me, pray more for me, okay? Maybe I'm just going to get all this prayer. Was it fantastic, okay? Well, hopefully not. Hopefully there's not too much hate. All right, so moving on. Uh, verse 11 through 15. In 11 through 15, Paul is essentially saying this. I want to see you, Roman church, because... I want to impart a spiritual gift to you. I want to be mutually encouraged by our faith. I want to reap a harvest of people coming to know Christ. Paul is saying what? He's saying, um, actually it's verse 11 through 13. He's saying, I want to come to you because I want to lead people to Christ. I want to come to you because I want to build up people in their faith. That's why I want to come to you. And so Paul was looking forward to that. And that's when he says, uh, I want to reap some fruit among you. A harvest. The fruit of people coming to know Christ. He goes on to say in verse 14 and 15 that I'm under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and foolish. I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul, when he said he was under obligation, verse 14, he was under obligation two ways. He saw his life as saying, I'm obligated to God for what God has done for me, what God has commanded me in my life. I'm under obligation to obey that. But secondly, he was under obligation to the church just because he loved them. He's on, these are my brothers and sisters. I cannot leave them. I cannot abandon I'm. I, I, they need me. Do you know that you're needed? You're not Paul. Neither am I. But you're needed here. You're under obligation. Not just to the Lord, but to us. Why? Because we need you. When you're not here, when you're not part of the life of the community, our community suffers. 
Our body is incomplete. The love is not what it should be. The power is not, is diminished. You know, your presence here, God can use in any number of ways to encourage other people. You may think you're a loser. God doesn't. Our church doesn't. And the worst thing you can do is isolate yourself. What you have to do is you have to break free from the lies of Satan and say, I will no longer be Satan's sucker. I will recognize I have an obligation to the body of Christ because they need me and I need them. Paul saw himself as a minister, uh, 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 an apostle to the Gentiles, a missionary to the Gentiles, to the barbarians. That's anyone who's not a Greek. Wise and foolish. And so he wanted to come to Rome in verse 15 to preach the gospel. And that's a summary of verses 1 through 15. But I want to spend the rest of the time on verse 16 and 17. And uh, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Jew, Greek, it's the righteousness of God for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And this is really one we spend the rest of our time. We're talking about faith. What is the role of faith? How does this speak to us today? And so let's go through this. Let's go to the next. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. You know what he was ashamed by? His past life. When you read Philippians chapter 3, Paul was ashamed of who he used to be. Ah, I used to place my pride in Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, zeal uh, without, you know, fault, persecutor of the church. And now he looked at that and he said in Philippians 3 that I now consider those accomplishments as rubbish. In the Greek, that word for rubbish he used there is actually translated more accurately, cow manure. I remember sitting at a table at a, um, a, a luncheon for uh, Christian Homeless Missions about 10 years ago. And, you know, I, as you guys know, I wanted to be a journalist when I was in, in college. I was sitting across the table from an award-winning journalist. And he's now president of uh, a mission, I think somewhere in the Midwest, Christian Mission, to the homeless. And I was like, wow, you won all these awards. And he goes, yeah, I did. You know, I really lived through that for a long time. He goes, but now, to be honest, I'm really embarrassed by that stuff. All those trophies, all those plaques, all those awards, having my name lifted up. He said, I'm actually embarrassed by that. What I'm actually um, proud of now is the work that we're doing with people in the name of Jesus Christ. And it really impacted me because, you know, here's a guy who made it to the top of his profession of something I used to. And he actually said, I'm embarrassed by that stuff. Of how all those, he said, I used to spend so much of my life pursuing that recognition. I'm actually ashamed of it. And I think Paul felt the same way. Are you ashamed for the right things? Are you unashamed for the right things? How would you know? I'm going to show you some pictures here. Uh, Very proud of our church. These men and these women, uh, these children, unashamed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That picture on the top left is one year ago during Haunted Little Tokyo. These people showed up, went on prayer walk as all these people were walking around in costumes. We were praying for the area. At one point, we stopped in the Japanese Village Plaza. There was a little uh, kind of platform there. Kyle had his guitar, and we said, we're just going to sing worship songs as all these people walk by. And we unashamedly praised God in front of everyone. Some people joined us. Some people were encouraged by this. And um, there has to be moments in your life when you're unashamed and you can point 
to it. Uh, this is a picture on the top right hand. Uh, our ministry to Olive Crest. There's Sarah. There's Darcy. There was others. I know Kevin has served. Garen has served. David has served. There's many others of you. I know I'm forgetting some of you, but you know who you are, um, who've gone out to Olive Crest and served. Um, I know yesterday there was Isaiah, there was Ezekiel, there was Keen, um, who came to serve. And they did it unashamedly, sharing their faith with and praying with them. Uh, bottom left-hand corner, there was uh, a baptism, one of the several baptisms we had. I think that was the one with Cor, Felix, Vincent, and others. Um, you know, we've had other baptism where we've had... Um, you know, some of my kids, we've had Alan, we've had um, uh, Amanda, and um, and others. And we're going to have another baptism next week with Ronald and, um, I'm sorry, with uh, Anna and Ronald next week. Amanda was baptized before. Baptism is a way of saying, I am unashamed of the gospel of Christ. Jesus said in the gospels, if you are unashamed to declare me before men, I will what? Be unashamed to declare you before my father. But if you are ashamed to declare me before the world, I will be ashamed of you. And so they're unashamed. And this is a picture from... Uh, several weeks ago at the Nisei Week Outreach, and that woman that has her back to us in the white t-shirt, that's Jessica, who goes to our downtown LA service. And I know there's others of you that prayed with, with them uh, at the prayer wall, but Jessica was unashamed to say, and there's a you know, picture of a cross there, right? I'm unashamed to ask you, what, how can I pray for you? I want to pray to my God for you. Even though we don't know each other, I'm just going to openly do that. I know others of you did as well. What are you ashamed of? What are you unashamed of? If you're going to grow as a Christian, you have to put yourself out there. You have to. Some of you, you're at a place in your Christian faith where you've been listening to sermon after sermon after sermon. You go online, you read books, and uh, maybe you know some areas of theology better than I do. But what you're lacking is just this reckless abandon for God. Who is willing? God is looking for people to say, I'm willing not to be a fool for the world. I'm willing to be a fool for Christ. What you need is more experiences where you're scared. Where you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm going to put myself out there because I'm doing it. Because I'm unashamed, not because I'm going to go to heaven if I do, and not because God's just going to bless me or love me, but because it's the right thing to do with my life. And it feels good to be willing to look like a fool in the eyes of the world because you're unashamed for Christ. You know what that does? It builds your faith. It matures you in Christ. When you stay in this place where you're always like, you can't break out of this stuckness, this lukewarm world, this constant state of defeat, maybe one of the reasons why is we need to say, no, I need to go the opposite direction. And there's got to be a portion in my life where I say, I will take a stand to be unashamed. And it feels good to take a risk for the kingdom of God. And that's how you grow in your faith. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And you build confidence. You Lord graces you with boldness and maturity. And all of a sudden you find yourself moving at a supernatural pace and speed in your life that makes the past Chris look like, oh my goodness, you know what? That guy was ashamed. You know, it's easy. It's easy to say we're not ashamed when we're sitting here just staring at each other. 
you bring clarity to your faith to truly know if you're unashamed when you have to go do something daring for God, when you have to take a step of faith for God, when you have to go share your faith with the world, go represent him in the world. That's the clarity to see who's truly ashamed. We can all say what we want here. And you think I'm being hard on you? This is the reality of how it works, you guys. And when you do that, and you say, and you may not even make all the right moves, God blesses that. He strengthens that. Scripture said God searches the entire world. In Second Chronicles, he searches the entire world to look for those whose hearts are fully committed to him, to strengthen them. And he wants to strengthen your heart. Don't live a life of mediocrity. Let's go out. And let's not be ashamed. So he says that. And then, uh, oh, you know what? Um, let's go back to that. Uh, one last story um, on this. Um, two, two um, just to make it real. Um, this, past, uh, this past week, I had two experiences uh, that remind me of the importance of not being ashamed for the gospel. Number one is uh, I-, I talked to someone for about three hours on the phone this week. Uh, they were just going through a difficult time. Uh, and uh, they had just uh, a failure in their Christian walk. So I spent three hours on the phone. I spent another hour or so after that this week with them. And the bottom line is I counseled them in a lot of different ways, and, and then I said, here's, here's what I would say you need to do to move forward. One of the things I told them was, if you want to truly move forward, and this is not the first time this has happened, what you really need to do is go back to the crowd that you were hanging out with that led to this failure and call them because they're your friends and say, hey, you know, this, this, this things that happened, that's not the real me. Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's clown world me, all right? The real me is a follower of Jesus Christ. And while I let my Lord down, I want you to know that there is forgiveness for every one of us. He is the Lord of my life. I want to invite you to church. I want to invite you to, can I share with you my test? You need to go back to that crowd that led you like a puppet to the pit of hell. And now go the opposite direction, saying, I'm not going to be ashamed. And I'm going to call these people up because I know them, they're my friends. And I'm going to tell them that in an unashamed way. And you know why? It's not because of me. You don't need to do that. I'm not going to be coming down your, you know, keep calling. Did you do it? Did you do it? No, you need to do that because there's something happens in your spirit, you guys, when you make a stand for God. It develops an integrity, a resolve. And so instead of seeing yourself like a victim, you turn it around and say, this is going to be a victory for God. I'm going to unashamedly declare that. And he said he called them and told them, which I commended him for. The second example was, um, you know, uh, my son Ethan is in AYSO soccer, and he had his first game yesterday. And, um, you know, I had to show up an hour early for the game to set up the goals and to, you know, to paint the lines for the, the, the field. And uh, so I did that. And, you know, uh, I go to pretty much all of his practice. I take him, I pick him up. And so I sit around. Not all the parents are there. And, you know, um, but, you know, all the parents were there for the first game. And so I said, you know what? We're here. Okay. And I was thinking how these teams work is they, they reshuffle them every year. So it's not like you see the same parents every year on these teams. So you're probably just that's your one season. And most of these you know, these parents, you don't get to know them during the season and you don't see them anymore. Um, and so I said, okay, let's just... Tomorrow, it's going to be different. 
And so I'm going to be more intentional. So one of the guys that I was sitting up the field with, a guy named Adam, we're just talking and, you know, I was asking him questions about his, his life. I was like, Lord, help, have him ask me about my life. And he goes, well, what do you do? I was like, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And I said to him, I, so I started sharing. I said, uh, hey, did you see the movie Ford versus Ferrari? You guys see that movie? Matt Damon, Christian Bale is out like four years ago or something. It's a great movie. Um, so I was watching that recently, and there's this one scene where um, a guy named Carol Shelby is played by Matt Damon. He gives a speech that's announcing this race program that Ford's undertaking to take on Ferrari in um, in Italy. And Matt Damon gave this really in, Matt Damon gives this really inspiring speech as a, uh, this character uh, Carol Shelby, and he basically says this. He says, "My dad told me that there are some men who are fortunate." And they find what they're passionate about, and they get to do that with their life. Those men are very fortunate. And then Shelby turns and he says, but my dad told me there are some men, and there's these precious few men, that they find not just what they want to do, they find something in life that they have to do. That if they don't do it, it's going to just turn them clear out of their minds. And he turns and he says, I'm that guy, and I know one other man who's like that, Mr. Ford. And together, we're going to make history at Le Mans, and we're going to beat Ferrari. Right? And it's rousing applause. And I said to this Adam, I said, you know that scene? Well, I feel like I'm Carol Shelby. I feel like I didn't find something in my life that I was just passionate about. I found something that I have to do. And that I found God and I realized when I was in my 20s, I told him this, we're sitting there before the game. I said, I found, I realized early on that there's only two things that last for all of eternity, God and people. And so I made a decision, Adam, when I was in my 20s to align my entire life around those two things, right? So I was sharing that with him. And I saw another guy on the sideline and he was wearing a t-shirt that was a silhouette of Anthony Bourdain. And uh, during the break between the quarters, I just went up to him and introduced myself. And I said, hey, is that T-shirt Anthony Bourdain? He goes, yes. I go, do you like them? Because I've watched like, you know, 80 episodes of, you know, No Reservations and Parts Unknown and minus the cussing and stuff. I like the show. And, um, and so, uh, you know, who among us hasn't dreamed of being Anthony Bourdain and having his job for about a year? And so I said, um, you know, I actually wrote a book. Uh, where I mentioned Anthony Bourdain in one of my books. And the reason why is because, you know, he had this tattoo on his forearm that says, translated, I'm certain of nothing. I'm not even certain of that. And I saw Bourdain's life as a constant search for truth and love. And I found that in God. You know, I was trying to share that. But I said, you know, I'm just going to be unashamed. These guys, people can blow me off. But I'm going to find some way to share my faith with them. Sometimes you got to take the initiative, right? And find a way. To say, I'm going to say something. I don't have to be out there with a bullhorn. I'm going to do something to, to be unashamed for Christ. All right, so um, let's move on. And then he says this, not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel, he says in verse 16 and 17, is the power of God for salvation and the righteousness of God and is revealed through the gospel. The power of God, the righteousness of God, that is the gospel. It, the word for power here in verse 16 is from the Greek, Greek word dunamis which is where we get the English word dynamite. Think about it. Your salvation required God to blow up your former life at the cross to transfer you from the dark kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of the Son where you've received redemption, forgiveness, Colossians 1. 
It literally required God and required God to blow you up spiritually with dynamite force to get you to come alive to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how bad our sin is. That's how damned we were. God had to blow up our former life by his power and it required his power. Your salvation and my salvation requires nothing less than God himself and his power to rescue us. That is why it is a joke to think that the secular humanist can be out there and thinking, I, I, I can do it on my own. That the Eastern mystic can be, I can figure out that I am God. It is a joke. It actually requires God to blow up your former life And it requires nothing less than God himself and his power to save you through the cross. And it requires the righteousness of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God. That we don't have our own righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ. The challenge when we read the righteousness of God is to look at that and not just me go, M-E-G-O, my eyes glaze over. It is to say, I need the righteousness of God. And the reason why is because I'm old enough, I'm experienced enough, and I know my own heart well enough to realize that apart from Christ, I'm not righteous. Have you come to that realization about your own heart? Because until you do, this won't mean anything. And secondly, when you come to the realization, not only is your own heart not righteous, but secondly, the righteousness of God through Christ is the better way. It is the better way. It is the right way. It is the life-giving way. It is the truthful way, the righteousness of God. Have you resolved that in your mind? Because the lie will tell you, no, the righteousness of Christ, it's not the life-giving way. It's not the truthful way. It's not the better way. My flesh is the better way. See, What's supposed to happen in your life is that the older you get, the more maturity you get as a Christian. You have more wisdom that's born out of hard failure and experience in your Christian life and the grace of God where you look at your life and you say, I I have a, a sense of resolve now that the righteousness of God is is good in my life because I remember when I was walking with the Lord in his righteousness in a sanctifying way. And I remember how that felt. I remember how life-giving that was. I remember that I didn't have a guilty conscience. I wasn't continually walking in shame. And I want that for my life because that's good. And I remember that. And as I compare my old self that kind of springs up from time to time, that's an ugly thing. I don't want that anymore. Have you come to that place? Because when you read the righteousness of God, it, it won't mean anything to you until you recognize it's the better way. And we get to that place when we recognize our heart isn't like that. And it is actually the better way. Do you remember back to those times, Christian, in your life where the righteousness of God was active in your life and in your family and in your marriage and in your, pers- in your personal walk and how good that was, how much victory there was, how much fruit there was, right? And that's available to you at any moment when you submit to 
Christ in a sanctifying way. And finally, for today, he says this. Not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. It's the righteousness of God. For who? For anyone who believes and for those who live by faith. For those who believe and for those who live by faith. Faith is not just, faith is a noun and it is a verb. When it says believes, when it says righteous shall live by faith, it's talking as faith as something that is a noun. The content of your faith, the doctrines, the truths, the principles of your faith. That is a noun. What do you believe? What is your worldview? Faith is a noun. What do you believe? Do you believe in the gospel as a set living truth? Faith is a noun. But faith is also a verb. Do we live by faith? Not just in terms of what we believe doctrinally, truthfully, principle-based, but do we trust in God in our lives? Are we trusting in Him? You know the idea of trust, right? We know when it's there and when it's not. Trusting Him for our salvation. Trusting Him that the righteousness of Christ is available to us. That's the better way. Trusting Him with our finances. Trusting Him with our obedience. Stepping out in faith, trying to do things in the kingdom of God that is actually beyond us, that requires God to do. That's faith as a verb. And to be honest, the idea of salvation encompasses both the noun of faith, what you believe, and that there's an aspect of active trust as faith as a verb. Once saved, always saved, but once saved, always saved is a noun and a verb at the same time time. In closing, when we talk about faith, you have to realize something about the Christian faith. God has orchestrated the world and your life and your reality to where you have to live by faith. Um, we don't live by proof. We don't live. And when, you, when you talk about spiritual things, when you talk about religious things, it's not about proof. It's not about Uh, scientific laboratory things. What this is about is about faith. God has put you in a place in your life where he wants you to live by faith in him. He hasn't given you omnipotence, omniscient, and um, um, omnipresence. You have to live by faith. And the reason why God has done that is because he wants you and I in a constant state where we have to depend upon him. You may be sitting here And you're like, pastor, my abject failure is so bad. Um, And the good news about that is that God has you in a place of faith where he wants to remind you, this is why you need me. I'm not going to cast you away. I want you to come to me. And that act of faith is what's righteous. You may be here and saying, I'm taking a risk for God. That's a good thing. Living by faith is our way of saying, God, we're living through and by you, for you. So let's be that kind of Christian. Let's be that kind of church. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we close our time in your word, thank you for the truths of faith in the book of Romans. Thank you that uh, you are shaping us. You're going to conform us in a great way to Christ through this series in the epistle of Romans. As we journey forward, we look forward to growing more like Christ. I pray you would bless City Bible Church and that we may uh, all mature in the way of our Lord. And for this week, live as faith, as a noun, but also as a verb,
that we live by the power of God, by the righteousness of God. Would you bless our congregation with that, Lord? And we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd stand together and close in worship.